0: is from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, It's the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. You are our shelter. You are our fortress and our refuge. And God, we thank you that we can run to you and find protection and comfort, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed or depressed or weak or weighed down by the cares of this life. God, we, we're so glad that you are so kind to us. You're the eternal Lord and Creator. Every day you call out the billions of stars by name, and yet at the same time you're available to us, and not only available, but you delight in us as we come to you, our Father, for strength and help. We confess, Father, we're far too easily overwhelmed by this world. We know in our heads that whatever we face Our anchor will hold fast, but in our hearts too often we feel adrift and out of control. We become anxious and overwrought. We wait far too long to run to you, foolishly thinking that we'll be okay. I got this. We know better, but our foolish pride is very stubborn. Forgive us for calling you our Father, but too often coming to you only as a last resort rather than as our first option. Thank you for the loving discipline you give us when you allow us to feel dazed and confused and so weak and inept so that we can return to you and learn new dependence upon you. Thank you for lovingly reminding us that apart from you, we can do nothing, that our strength is in you, our joy is in you, our future is in you, that every good and perfect gift that we could ever want is found in you. God, we pray that you would cause us to believe that. Help us every day to stay near the cross of your son, Jesus, where once and for all you reconciled us to yourself through his death. God, help us to live in the light of your amazing grace. Father, as a church family, we confess that we've not yet fully awakened from a very long COVID slumber. Many of our ministries remain inactive and have settled into the lethargy of a pandemic church. God, we pray, have mercy on us. Help North Shore as a church, by your grace, to be vital, energized, and active in Holy Spirit-empowered ministry as we energetically return to you. God, we pray for special grace this Tuesday evening, especially when we, as a church, come together to seek after you in prayer and repentance. Father, we're reminded every day that we live in dark times. This world is so upside down. What's been considered virtuous and admirable in our culture for most of our lives is now considered, by many, foolish and even hateful. Right is wrong, wrong is right, and it feels like those advocating for the wrong are much louder and much more vocal than your voices for good. Father, it seems like our nation is a runaway freight train headed for a sudden crash as we increasingly seek to eliminate you from every vestige of the public sphere. We admit we deserve that crash, and yet we also plead with you that in your abundant mercy and grace that you would, rather than bring your judgment, instead grant us a new spiritual awakening. By your Spirit, move across our land and do miracles of transformation. Awaken the slumbering, convert the hard-hearted and deceived, and enliven your church in America to live more faithfully as Christ's ambassadors, willing to boldly shine the light of Christ in the midst of a dark world. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in our family here, for those who are grieving like Bob Jerzyk, we pray your comfort. For those who need Healing, like Rob Lobbs, we pray for your touch. For those who are in need in any way, we pray for your provision. Would you strengthen us and energize us to minister to one another in your body here, as well as to those on the outside? Cause our church to live and minister in a way that would shine a light on the power and glory of the grace of God. Father, as we turn now to your word, we need you to help us. Keep us from distractions that so easily pull us away. Help us by illumining our minds so that we can understand and energetically apply your word. Help me to speak your word clearly, plainly, and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that as you work in us through your word, Jesus might be magnified in our lives and in your church. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning we, again, are spending time in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is continuing his argument from the first three chapters, three verses of this chapter. We looked at that last week. Last week we spent our time thinking seriously about what Paul means in verse 1 when he says that before sinners come to Christ, they are dead in trespasses and sins. And so we reminded ourselves at some length What it is to be spiritually dead, and that is to be spiritually dead is to be completely unable to see or appreciate the worth, the value, the beauty, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Spiritually dead people can't treasure Christ or do anything requiring a new spiritual heart. Spiritually dead people can be very religious and be very dedicated to a local church, but they can't genuinely be in love with Jesus. That requires being raised out of your spiritual grave into new life in Christ. We noted that these spiritually dead people, regardless of how pleasant their personalities might be or their seeming openness to spiritual things, are all equally dead and all require a miracle of new birth to have spiritual life We also thought about how our evangelism should be impacted when we know that we're sharing the gospel with someone who is spiritually dead. Ultimately, God miraculously uses the message of the gospel, not simply to convince someone to make a decision for Christ, but to raise the dead. Finally, we looked at Paul's treatment specifically of the terrible plight of spiritually dead people in verses 2 and 3. Just by way of reminder, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We looked at each one of those disastrous marks of a spiritually dead person with the hope that it would cause us to see more clearly the wretched condition of the lost people who are around us, and if we're in that state, to see that place as well. This week, as we come to verse 4, Paul turns a corner, and he turns our attention to look more closely at what God does when he brings dead sinners to new life in Christ. Having laid out this horrible state of lost people, Paul radically pivots here in verse 4, and he injects the best of news, and he transitions to God's saving work with these glorious words, but God. Paul details the hopelessness, after he does that, of spiritually dead people. He follows that with, but God. Which means, in other words, that God is the only one who can solve this epic problem of spiritual death. Apart from a miracle from God, spiritually dead people will indefinitely remain in that state. And when their bodies die, they will experience what the Apostle John calls the second death, which includes the eternal wrath of God for their sin. But there is so much to what God does in saving sinners, and Paul reveals what's at the very heart of that work. And he does that in a curious way. He does that through what is awkward wording in verse 5. Maybe you caught this when we read it. Paul says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Do you notice anything strange in that sentence? I mean, it would have been far less awkward for Paul to have simply said, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him. That really flows nicely. It flows far more smoothly than what Paul actually wrote. But he breaks the flow by throwing into the middle of his thought an additional phrase. In between being made alive together with Christ and being raised up with him, Paul inserts this phrase, By grace you have been saved. It's even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. Now, when a biblical author words something less than eloquently, that's not simply bad style on his part. This is inspired writing by the Holy Spirit, and that means that there's a reason why Paul inserts this phrase, by grace you have been saved. But it's even more curiously placed here when we discover that just three verses later, Paul will again say in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. That's verbatim repetition of what he said in in verse 5 when he awkwardly inserts it into the middle of a sentence. Why does he do this? Those are the kind of questions which will give you the understanding of what Paul meant. We should be looking at the text and be saying, Why did he say that? I don't see that that makes sense. When you start to answer those kind of questions, you are on your way to being able to be a good interpreter of the Bible. The reason why Paul places this double emphasis on the grace of God here, and you're going to hear this over and over today to the point of nauseam, but it's important. The reason he stresses this is because salvation rests totally, completely, absolutely on God and his character and we bring nothing, nada, nine, nicht, zero, zip, zilch, to our salvation. That's why, in the midst of describing what God does for these spiritual corpses in need of salvation, that he inserts, by grace you have been saved. To emphasize that salvation is all from God and nothing from us. The reason this is so important is because grace is a deal-breaker. You're saved by grace. That's it. And if we make even the slightest, slightest, the tiniest, the most infinitesimal contribution to our salvation, it's not grace. Grace implies a gift, and by definition, you don't contribute anything to receive a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift, it's a reward. If you say to your wife, I know your birthday's coming up next Tuesday, I'm going to give you a nice present, why don't you go out and mow the lawn? Okay, that's not a gift. That's a reward. That's really important that we get that, because it's so easy in our heart to fudge that. This is the main point in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So why did God save you? That's a very important question. And the answer is because of something in him and nothing in us. It's exclusively, absolutely, solely based on the character of God, who is rich in mercy and great in his love for us. God saves sinners out of pure grace, and that grace flows out of his heart, which is rich in mercy. Now, mercy is an important biblical word. It basically means his deep and heartfelt compassion, which drives him to action, saving action. And there are no limits to God's mercy, which is why he says God is rich in mercy. Paul continues by revealing that God saves dead sinners because of his great love with which he loved us. This is a precious verse because this is the only place in the New Testament where God's love is speaking of as being great. This is the only place. He has great love for his children. Why does he save us? Because those whom he has chosen to save, he greatly loves those people. Now we have to be careful here because it's easy for us when we hear something about God, that we put our understanding in the way that we do something on the way that God does something. And frankly, when it comes to loving people, you're talking about a night and day difference between the way God loves people and the way we love people. That's because, except for our very closest family members, when we greatly love someone, it's in some way connected to what we see in him or her, right? I mean, this person is attractive, or they're clever, or they're winsome, or they're funny, or they're kind, or they've done a lot of nice things for us. There's some reason or reasons to love the person. There's something lovable about them. Even with our family members, though, we're more attracted to some than others, and those preferences are not because of anything in us, but because there's something more appealing to us in them. Okay, that's not at all the case with how God loves us. And again, if there's even one quality or characteristic about us that caught God's eye for us to save him, then we have not been saved by grace, which means we're not saved. Being saved by grace means that we bring nothing to the table. There is nothing in us naturally lovable to God. And there is nothing in us that in any way compelled God to choose or to save us. It's really important. He sees sinners for what they are. Rebels who are, through their unbelief, spitting in his face. That's the way he sees sinners. That's the point of Paul's following his revelation about God's love for us with the words, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That means here's what we bring to the table we bring a spiritual corpse. Corpses are good for nothing. That's why we bury them, to take them out of circulation. If someone were to keep a corpse around, we would assume that he's mentally ill. Sinners are spiritual corpses that are completely incapable of doing anything to please God, but instead, in their spiritually dead state, have continuously betrayed their creator. It's important to Paul that we see that a rotting spiritual corpse is what we bring to God. That's what's so utterly unique about God's rich mercy and his great love for us, because he loves us when we were, in his 100% accurate understanding, spiritual roadkill. That because of our sin raised a stench in his holy nostrils. God chose us, he had mercy on us, he greatly loves us with absolutely no basis for any of that in us. It all comes from him. And one of the implications of this truth is that apart from the grace of God, this is impossible for us to internalize and rejoice in. We can understand it in our head. It's not hard to understand. But for it to get into our heart, for us to celebrate it, takes the grace of God. And the reason is because nobody else loves us like this. Paul implies this in Romans chapter 8. He's actually contrasting our love with God's love. And here's the main contrast. But God, there's another but God for you, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another reason this grace, this love is so impossible for us to get into our hearts is because we all are prideful people. And even though we may outwardly agree, mentally assent, that God sees nothing in us to love, in the depths of our prideful soul, our pride drives us to another conclusion. This is so subtle. We don't think this way outwardly, but it's often the way we feel. Our pride influences us to assume that in our relationship with God, that his love for us is compelled by something in us. For instance, God loves my well above average patience, or that I'm kinder, or more compassionate. I am some way more lovable than other people. That's what pride always assumes about why we're loved. And it's because we're so adorable. (laughs) Our pride sinfully compels us to search within ourselves for something that must be lovable to a holy God. And that's why when we fail, we assume God doesn't love us anymore. Because we've been trying to find reasons for God to love us that are centered in ourselves. And so when we fail, with that understanding, God's lost all his rationale for loving us because we're not good anymore. The point is, we're never any good, (laughs) and God loves us the same. By grace you have been saved. That's his way of reminding us that the cause of God's love resides 100%, totally, absolutely, in him. We're no more worthy of salvation than any other sinner. We're all in the same state of being spiritually dead, and why God chooses to love some and not others is solely because of his sovereign grace and purposes, which we will not understand until we get to heaven. It's impossible to communicate how important this is, and the reason this is so crucial is because unless you genuinely own this, not mentally, in your heart, you cannot receive saving grace. I want to shift gears a little bit here Not from the text, but there's a theology in the text that's very important for us to think about. It lies at the center of this text, which we're going to see, but this is so central to all of the New Testament. And many believers do not have a very good understanding of this. We talk about being justified and regenerated and sanctified and glorified. Hopefully we all understand that. But those works of God and every other work of God in salvation Every other blessing that we've ever received from God is rooted in this crucial truth that we want to spend some time in. And that is, the New Testament is filled with references to what theologians call the believer's union with Christ. Now that may sound rather boring. That's the most exciting truth in the New Testament, other than the fact that God sent his son to come and die for us. The most exciting thing about our relationship with God is our union with Christ, because Everything else flows out of that. The reason we're looking at this today is because it's inundated in this text. It's a common thread that runs through all of this. Just listen to this, and I'll emphasize the parts that bring out our union with Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's five explicit mentions of our union with Christ in three verses. This is absolutely central to what we're looking at today, but also the New Testament message of salvation. Paul says that we are spiritually alive, raised up and seated with him, and we receive the kindness of all of his grace because we are in Christ. We are with Christ, another way to put it. All the blessings of salvation flow out of that limitless spiritual reservoir. The main way that it's put in the New Testament of being united Christ with Christ, is in Christ, Christ in us, or Christ with us. Phrases like that, revealing our union with Christ, are found just in the writings of Paul, 160 times. He wrote 13 books, 160 references. That gives you some idea how this pervades the New Testament, and yet many believers don't really get a good handle on what it is to be a Christian. In the book of Ephesians, we see this when Paul says that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's 1-3. We are chosen in Christ. 1-4. We are created in Christ for good works. That's 2-10. We have redemption in Christ. 1-7. We have an inheritance in him. That's all literal. I wasn't just saying it because it's theologically true. I was just reading the text, in him. Okay, Outside of Ephesians, we're justified in Christ, Galatians 2.7. We have redemption in Christ, Romans 3.24. We have eternal life in Christ, Romans 6.23. We have righteousness in Christ, 1 Corinthians one thirty. We have freedom from the law in Christ, Galatians 2.4. Again, every benefit of salvation we have Is there because we are in Christ. In the New Testament, these blessings of salvation that we receive by virtue of our union with Christ fall into three different time periods. Some of these blessings were given to us before we were born. When we were chosen in Christ, that was somewhere in eternity past. We were crucified and we were, past tense, raised with Christ 2,000 years ago when he died and was raised. In those scriptures where our union refers to something before we were born, then our union is in the mind of God, which doesn't mean he's just imagining it. It means it's real. It's just in his mind. God thought of us as unified with Christ. But some of the references, of course, are about our union with Christ in this present life. And then some more are about what we're going to get in heaven. For instance, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in this life. We were justified in Christ in this life when we believed, and we will die in Christ if we're believers in this life. In heaven, we will be glorified in Christ. That's in the future, obviously. This this union with Christ is so basic to our salvation. It's ultimately what determines whether someone is a Christian or not. Paul says in Romans 8.10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, you're a Christian. If Christ is not in you, you're dead to sin. Very briefly, let's ask three questions about this just to help us understand or get our, our hearts around this. The first question is, What is this, being in union with Christ? What's it like? Second is, what does it do for us? And third is, The question, how are we best to understand it? Now, Millard Erickson, who was one of my theology professors in seminary, gives a very helpful treating in his systematic theology. I'm going to be borrowing heavily from that if any of you want to know. So first, what is the union with Christ like? First, it's mysterious. It's mysterious and that is there are things about being united with Christ that we're simply not going to understand in this life We're not going to be able to understand it later in Ephesians Paul speaks of this union with Christ and he says in 532 This mystery is profound And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church He's speaking of the union with Christ. This is a mysterious element to being one with Christ We're not going to get it until we get to heaven Paul in Colossians 1.26 and 7 speaks of our union with Christ, and he said, is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And By mystery in this place, he's talking about the fact that the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about this. Nothing about God dwelling in a person. It was hidden from them. It was revealed only in Christ. And what he says, it's because of our union with Christ. That's the hope of glory. Our only hope of being with God for eternity in glory is Christ in us. Second, our union with God is judicial. This is so important. Because when we talk about justification, at the heart of justification— is union with Christ. I'm going to read something. This is so helpful to me. Listen carefully. Erickson says, when the Father evaluates or judges us before the law, he does not look upon us alone. God always sees the believer in union with Christ and measures the two of them together. He does not say, Jesus is righteous, but that human is, unrighteousness, is unrighteous. He sees the two as one and says in effect, they are Are righteous. For God to say that the believer is righteous even when he or she does not live righteously, that's not a fiction or a misrepresentation. It is the correct evaluation of a new legal entity. The believer has been incorporated into Christ and Christ into the believer. All the assets of each are now mutually possessed. From a legal perspective, the two are now one. Okay, that's so important. If that's on your heart, you are going to walk in victory a whole lot more consistently than people who don't have that in their heart. Because justification is rooted in that. That means for God to condemn a believer, he would also have to be condemning Christ in the believer. Think of it this way that I mentioned before. When John the Baptist baptizes Christ, the Father says to him, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If you're a believer, you're united in Christ, that means that God is telling you, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. you believe that? That's what God says about you. Why? Because we're one with Christ. This is absolutely mind-blowing if we think about it for any length of time. And as we preach the gospel to ourselves, our union with Christ should be one of the major things that we think about first. Third, our union with the Christ is spiritual. This has two pieces to it. First, the spiritual union means that this union is affected by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that bonds the believer to Christ. And apart from the indwelling Spirit, we could not be united to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were baptized into Christ. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So we united Christ as part of his body when the Holy Spirit baptizes spiritually us at our conversion. The presence of the Spirit within a believer comes into us and brings us into union with Christ. Our union with Christ is spiritual in another means, though, and that is that the union of our spirits with Christ. The union of our spirits with Christ. That means that neither spirit, our spirit or Christ's spirit, is extinguished in the union. They dwell together as complementing entities. We aren't enfolded into Christ and lost in him. We both exist in union with one another. That's important because many people get that messed up. Fourth, our union with Christ is vital. Erickson is right when he says of Jesus that his life actually flows into ours, renewing our inner nature and imparting spiritual strength. This is behind what Paul says in or John says in 15:4. He says, "Abide in me and I in you." As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That is his life flowing into ours, the vine and the branches. And he says that we bear fruit only as we abide, as his life flows into us. It's our union with the Spirit, our union with Christ by the Spirit that gives us spiritual life and the capacity to be more and more like Jesus. The second question that we want to ask of this doctrine is, what does it do for us? Well, we just noted that it gives us life and produces spiritual fruit, but it also does something we've mentioned earlier, but it's worth looking at a little more closely, and that is we are counted righteous before God because of our union with Christ. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason believers cannot be condemned to eternal punishment is because they're in union with Christ. And Christ cannot be condemned because he's already been condemned for sin at the cross. Which means that every one of our sins has already been condemned in Christ. Do we get this? This is the gospel. Every sin I've ever been committing, it's been already condemned. It's already been judged in Christ because I was crucified with Christ. It also means that in God's sight, we are as righteous as Christ because it's our righteousness, his righteousness in union with us. Again, this is the truth that we should preach every day to ourselves because our spiritual identity which is what we're talking about, is very important. You cannot be spiritually mature without a strong sense of your identity in Christ. And that identity, in part, is I am righteous. Do we believe that? Because I'm in Christ. The the New Testament teaching in Paul, in particular, that covers everything about our maturity, can be stated this way. Be who you are, or become who you are who you are, okay, that's obviously paradoxical, but you cannot become who you are unless you're very convinced of who you are, and that just becomes part of your understanding. It's part of your working understanding of yourself. So this is so important. What else does our union with Christ do with us? Well, first of all, it means that we now live in Christ's strength. This is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him. That's union. Through him who strengthens me. He strengthens us by our union with him. Again, we have to understand that when Paul says that Christ strengthens him, Paul is not losing his individuality. He doesn't just mystically melt into Christ where his personality is obliterated and he can passively just sit back and let Christ do all the work. We do the work... But we do it with the strength that he supplies to us as we trust in him. This is really important because many people fall off on one side or the other. They take too much responsibility. It's all up to them. Or they just want to be passive and sit back and let Jesus do it through them. It's not either one of those. We do the work but with the strength that he provides. And that's rooted in our union with Christ. Our union with Christ also means that we will suffer with Christ Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We're one in Christ. Christ suffered. We're going to suffer too. That's the point. Our union with Christ allows us to enter into his sufferings. In Philippians 3.10, Paul is passionate. He wants to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering because he's one with Christ. When we suffer as Christians, we should never see that as being strange or wrong. Our union with Christ guarantees that we're going to suffer with him. Finally, our union with Christ gives us the sure hope of reigning with Christ. We saw this two weeks ago from 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. That's union If we deny him, he will also deny us. We will reign with Jesus because we are in union with him. And we saw when we looked at it more closely that we're going to reign in this way. Jesus will reign, but he'll reign through his church. Again, all the benefit of our salvation, past, present, future, come to believers as a consequence of our union with Christ. Finally, a third question, how are we to best understand this? How are we to best understand union with Christ? Fortunately for us, the Bible uses, New Testament uses various illustrations to help us understand what this mystery is. Otherwise, we'd we'd understand very little of it. But these illustrations help us because it, it helps to put it into our realm where we can understand it a little better. Now, the first illustration of our union with Christ is the union of a husband and a wife in marriage. Paul compares the role of the husband with Christ's role of headship over his church, and he compares the role of the wife with the church, which is joined to Christ. And what he's saying is this is union with Christ. It's like a husband and a wife that are one flesh. Though two people, they are one flesh. Okay, hear the similarities there? And that speaks of the intimacy of our union with him. Paul tells us that the ultimate purpose of marriage And the union it represents is to provide a model of what Christ and the church have together in union with one another. That's the whole purpose of marriage. It took God 4,000 years to reveal that. But he did in Ephesians 5. Another illustration the New Testament gives of our union with Christ is the union of Christ as head over his body, the church. Do you hear again? There's union there, the Christ and as the head and the, the body of, church, of the church as the body. In verse 122, we looked at, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The emphasis here is on how Christ relates to us, how Christ works through those he's in union with. And as we said, the head gives direction and the body works as his hands and feet on earth. So again, it's the same picture. He does the work, but he does it through us as we trust him. The body of Christ also speaks of the union that we have with one another because we're all in the same boat. We're all part of the same being. A third illustration of The union with Christ in the New Testament is the union of the vine and the branches, which we just looked at. The stress here in that picture of our union with Christ is to point to our complete, utter dependence upon Him. As we trust in Him, as we abide in Him, we can bear His fruit. John 15, 5 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. No union, no abiding, no fruit. A final illustration is the union of a spiritual temple composed of many stones. Later on in Ephesians 2.20, we're going to see this. Paul is writing about the church, and he says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here, The emphasis of this union is on the permanence of this union, its stability and its strength. This union will endure like a masonry building with Christ himself as the indestructible, immovable cornerstone, with his church being built as part of that unified, permanent structure. The Holy Spirit indwells and empowers us for service to Jesus. Now that's a huge topic and we've covered it pretty quickly, but I hope you catch an idea of how important it is. And as you're reading through and you see these phrases in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, you're going to stop and think, I'm beginning to understand what that's talking about. All the blessings of salvation flow flow to us through our union with Christ. It's only as we meditate, though, on the wonder of this mystery and pray for God to open the eyes of our hearts that we really come to more fully appreciate it and live out of it. This is just another way that Christianity is categorically different than every other world religion, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any other faith. In none of those religions does that include a personal union that is established between the God of those religions and the adherence of the religion. Only in Christianity, through Christ, does God take up residence and become one with His children. It's amazing. This is miraculous. It's supernatural. And it's why no matter how far we may feel from God, sometimes we can have hope that there is going to be future growth and eventual perfection because Christ is in me by the Spirit of God. May God give us the grace to think deeply on these things and to live in the praise of the wonder of His grace in saving us for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so grateful that your New Testament is riddled with this blessed truth of what it is to be in Christ, with Christ, doing things through Christ. God, help us never to skip over that when we're thinking about justification, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification, because all those blessings come from union with Christ. Help us to keep that main thing the main thing. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today and it's become clear that this is a different world and they don't have a part of it. God, if there are people here who are in that place and who long, who want this, God, help them to know they can have it. It's a gift. And so, God, give them the grace, give them the faith to trust you, to trust Jesus that when He was on that cross, He was paying for their penalty, He was suffering for their sin, He was their substitute. Father, I pray that you would just enable them to know the wonder of new life in Christ that we have because of him. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless us with these truths as we walk out today and as we move during the course of this week. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I invite you to stand with us as we close in worship through song. are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Hey!
0: bless you and praise you. We thank you for the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the name at which every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for our gathering. God, we pray as we go down to lunch that you would bless this food. Thank you for it. And God, bless our fellowship so that we Amen. might know you better and get to know each other better too. For Jesus' sake, and all the people said, Amen. Amen.